Good morning. Uh, a few visitors here with us this morning. I just want to welcome you this morning especially. We're really glad that you are here with us as we worship the Lord. Um, if you're new with us the first time, uh, a couple things. We have a visitor card in the back table that we'd love for you to fill out. That way we can uh, get to know you. It's just sitting there by that box that says giving on it. Uh, you don't need to give anything, but you can put that uh, card in there with your information on it. That way we can follow up with you, uh, connect with you, how can we pray for you, and those sorts of things. Um, but we're, we're glad you're with us. Um, we are in a unique series right now. Uh, usually we just preach straight through books of Scripture, but for the next uh, few weeks we are looking at different uh, subjects based on our pillars over here. And we're going to pray in a second, but, but after that we're going to be looking at our, our pillar of fellowship and just what, is, what does the Scripture have to say to us about our fellowship with each other. And so it's, it's a good time to come because it kind of shows a little bit of the, the DNA of Redeemer Church and, and what we seek to be about. And so I hope that's encouraging to you as you're visiting with us. Uh, most of all, we, we hope that we can uh, just walk with you as you pursue the Lord and, and, and want to hear what he says in his word and how it applies to your life and want to walk with you in that. Uh, let's pray, church, and then we'll open up the word together. Father, we, we thank you for this time we've had. Lord, we thank you for reminding us through corporate worship of what a great God you are. Lord, a God who is, who is sovereign and in control and, and also loving and gracious and faithful. A God who is for us. A God who has made a way for us to be adopted into your family. God who calls us to cry out to you. Lord, we thank you so much for, for these things. We thank you for your word, how you minister to us. You expose us in our sins, but you also give us grace and you change us. Lord, we thank you for the hope of Jesus' return to this world. We do wait for that day and we, we wait confidently, Lord. Um, we wait expectantly. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, Lord, as we open your word, we want to ask that you would open up our hearts as well. Lord, help us to hear your word with humility. Help us to hear your word with an eye to ourselves and how you are calling us to, to believe differently, to love differently, to, to change. Lord, we, we want to ask that your spirit would do this work in our hearts. We, we cannot change our own hearts, but you can, Lord. And so we, we ask you to do that right now. Lord, we ask that you would change our hearts and, and through that heart change also bear more fruit in our lives, Lord. Father, we pray most of all that you would be honored through the preaching of your word today and through how we receive it and, and hearing it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be praying for you. Have you ever heard those words? Someone say, I'll be praying for you about that or I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. What do you think when someone says that to you? Maybe you just shared about a difficult week you had or about a hard decision you need to make and someone uh, that you're sharing with says, well, I'll be praying for you about that. How do you hear that phrase? I'm afraid that what we often hear when someone says, I'll pray for you and I'm praying for you is, is just a Christianized version of, I'm sorry that's happening or uh, my, I'll, I'll be thinking about you or, or, or just, just a way to get out of the heavy conversation that you're in. The phrase can seem empty to us, can't it? Have you ever, ever felt that? And I think we hear it this way sometimes because we're often guilty of actually doing this ourselves. It's, it's come off our own lips as an empty phrase. Have you ever told someone, I'm praying for you, and, and just walked away and never thought about that again? 
how much more meaningful would it be if the person asked you, can I take a moment to pray with you right now? And even more, how much more meaningful would it be for that person to come back to you later with a text or the next time they see you and say, I've been praying for you about that thing that's going on. How is it going? And following up with you. You know, if this was our regular experience when, when, when we, someone says, I'm praying for you, then I, then I think we would come to see it not as an empty phrase, but as one of the highest forms of love for someone to invest that way in us. Well, we're in a four-part series through our ministry pillars. There's over here on my right, our purpose statement at Redeemer Church is that we exist to pursue the glory of God and the joy of all people through worship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission. This is who we are as a church. We, we have been saved by Christ, by His death for our sins and His resurrection through faith in what He's done. And now we live not for ourselves, but for the glory of God. As we live for the glory of God, we, we pursue the joy of all people in coming to faith in Christ and coming to find the, their lives in His glory. And, and we pursue these things through these four what we call pillars, worship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission. And, and this morning we're focusing on fellowship. Now contrary to popular opinion, fellowship is not what happens when a church eats together. Fellowship can happen when we eat together, but that's not the substance of fellowship. Fellowship is our commitment to partner together in gospel love. That's what fellowship means. It's our commitment to partner together in gospel love. So by committing to fellowship with each other, we have committed to a lifestyle of giving and receiving gospel love to and from one another. That's the lifestyle that you've committed to as a member of Redeemer Church. A lifestyle of giving and receiving gospel love. And the word gospel is tremendously important here. We don't want to skip over this word gospel love. We're not just committed to, to any sort of love. We're committed to expressing gospel love to one another. You know, the, the world knows something about love. Jesus himself said that, that unbelievers know how to love each other. They know how to love those who they get along with. They know how to love those who, who they don't have any problem with. But Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount calls us to love our enemies. So, so where does that kind of love come from? That's gospel love. It, that, that's one aspect of, of, of love that the world doesn't have, but that, that Christ creates in us through the gospel. We're talking about loving with the kind of love that Jesus himself showed us. Jesus loved us with a love that this world has never known. His love was undeserved. You know, Jesus came and died not for good people. He came and died not for people that were lovely in and of themselves. He came and died for sinners. He came and died for those who sinned against him, those, those who, were, who were his enemies. He came and died for those who deserved judgment. This was his love, that he, he would come and die for those who, who have done everything they can to, to refuse him in their lives. His love was undeserved. His love was also sacrificial. Jesus came and he suffered for us and he humbled himself and he died on a cross for us. He, he gave himself for us. He gave it all for us. It's a sacrificial love to those who don't deserve it. It's a purposeful love. He didn't just, just die so he could say, that's how much I love you. No, he died to achieve something. What did he achieve through his death? Through his death on the cross, Jesus was, he was dying for our sins that separate us from our creator God. 
He, he was dying so that through his death, we can be forgiven of our sins. Jesus in our place, so that through his death, we can be reconciled to our creator. We can have a relationship with our God again. He died to achieve our salvation. It was a purposeful love. He loved us for our highest good, which was to be saved from our sin and be reconciled to our Heavenly Father. And His love is unconditional. Once we receive His love, once we come to Him by faith, it's, it's not like now He's saying, okay, now it's up to you. I've done my part, now you do your part. And if you mess up, I'm going to take my love away. No, Jesus loves us to the end. Jesus continues to love us. No matter what we do, through faith in Him, Jesus continues to love us. When we, when we sin, when we disobey, when we, when we go any other way than to follow Him, He continues to love us. He continues to forgive us. He continues to call us back to Himself. He holds us fast because He loves us. Just like we sing so often. So this is gospel love. It's not a love that's based on, uh, I want to love this person. This person is so uh, lovable. It's not a love that's, that's based on someone's performance for me. It's not a love that only goes so far. No, it's love that is undeserved, that is sacrificial, that's for someone's highest good, that, that no matter what someone does, we're going to keep on loving them. That's the kind of love that you and I have committed to giving one another. We're going to keep on loving each other no matter what we do to each other. You could spit in my face and I'm going to keep on loving you because I've committed to love you with gospel love. If it, if it costs me all my time, all my energy, we're going to love each other sacrificially. We're going to invest in each other. We're going to lose sleep over each other because of gospel, because Christ sacrificed himself for us. We're going to pursue each other's highest good. So if you're in sin, I'm going to pursue you and, and seek to help you because I know that true love does not let someone hurt themselves and harm themselves and go the wrong way. So, so the gospel love is the kind of love we've committed to. It's a love that Jesus has shown us. That's what we mean by fellowship. Now this morning we're going to look at one specific way that we've committed to love each other with gospel love, and that is through prayer. Under our fellowship commitment that we read every month, we commit to this specific application of gospel love. I commit to pray with and four others, collectively sharing our burdens, sorrows, and joys. You can just keep that up there the rest of the message. I commit to pray with and for others, collectively sharing our burdens, sorrows, and joys. Prayer for one another is an exercise of gospel love. In prayer, we sacrifice our time and our energy to think of others and bring them before the Lord. We bring them before God because He is their highest good. We do this for each other regardless of how we are treating each other, regardless of how one is living, regardless of, of how natural our friendship to that person might be. We, we commit to praying for each other because of gospel love, because we've committed to live this out together. So prayer is an exercise in gospel love. And this morning in this message, I hope to reinforce from the scriptures that this commitment that we make is biblical that this is right, this is good, this is not something that is just an optional thing for us as followers of Christ, but that we must do this. And I hope that as we do that, we are also helped in applying this commitment to our fellowship here at Redeemer Church for the glory of God and the joy of all people. So this morning we're going to see six ways that the New Testament calls us to corporate prayer. Six ways the New Testament calls us to pray with and for 
one another. We're going to be all around our New Testaments this morning. So open up to the book of Mark as we begin. The first way that the New Testament calls us to corporate prayer is through the example of Jesus. The example of Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, we see this flurry of activity from Jesus. Just look at, just scan the chapter with me. Starting in verse 14, we see Jesus beginning his ministry, going and preaching that the gospel, that the kingdom is at hand, and, and calling people to believe the gospel. Then he calls the first disciples to himself. Then he heals a man with an unclean spirit. Then he heals many. And then verse 35, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So after a full day of ministering to the needs of others, preaching the gospel, healing people, Jesus rises very early the next morning. It's still dark outside. And he goes to a desolate place where no one can find him. Why? So that he can pray. Now this is amazing to us because Jesus is fully God. Why does Jesus need to pray in the first place? You know, Jesus, though he is fully God, he came and lived as a man. And in his ministry, he did not rely on his divine attributes, but he lived as every one of us is called to live. He lived in dependence on the Spirit, and he lived in dependence on the Lord through prayer. So he is an example for us here. Jesus is living as the perfect man who knew that as a man he is dependent on God for his ministry and for his life, and so he rises very early to pray. Well, we don't know all that he prayed about, but we see a few glimpses, and, and one thing he prayed for was his disciples. Look at Luke chapter 22. Go over to the Gospel of Luke chapter 22. Jesus is telling Peter that he's going to deny him three times in the coming hours. But look what he says in Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, Simon is also Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But look what Jesus says. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. But I have prayed for you. So, so, so Jesus prayed specifically for Peter, specifically about this circumstance. Jesus took time to pray for this disciple and we can believe that he did this for all of his disciples during the course of his time with them. He prayed for them by name, by circumstance. Turn over to John 17. John chapter 17. We see here that Jesus not only prayed for his own disciples, but he prayed for all who would become his disciples. John 17, verse 20. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's praying to the Father before he goes to the cross. And he says in John 17, 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So, so Jesus, in his ministry, already began praying for you and for me. If you're a believer in Jesus' word, if you have accepted Jesus as the Lord of your life and as the one who died for your sins, if you've received him and he says, I, I'm praying for them. He knew your name then, and he began praying for you then. You know what? He didn't stop praying in his earthly ministry. Go to Hebrews chapter 7. 
Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus died for the sins of those who would believe in him. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the Father's right hand in heaven. And what is he doing right now in heaven? Hebrews 7, 25. We sang about this earlier. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right now, Jesus is interceding for you. He's praying for you right now. This is the example of Jesus. Jesus, from the beginning of his ministry, even now in heaven, he prays for his disciples. He prays for his disciples. And we are followers of Jesus. We are his disciples. So to be a disciple of someone is to imitate them, right? It's to do what they do. So if Jesus constantly prayed for his disciples, then, then that's the application for us. Do, do you devote time to praying for one another? Simple question. Do you devote time to praying for one another? If Jesus in his ministry on earth had to rise up very early to get alone and pray for others before ministering to them, how much more do we need to find time to get alone and pray for others before we seek to minister to each other? If Jesus would pray for his disciples, not just generically, but pray specifically, by name, by circumstance, for his disciples, shouldn't we also pray for each other specifically? Shouldn't we get the church directory out with our Bibles and go through it and pray for this member and this member, this, this family that we have that we've covenanted together with? Do you, do you devote time to praying for one another in those specific ways? And, and what's amazing is Jesus is praying for us right now. Don't you want to join Jesus in praying for each other. You realize that when, when, when we pray for each other, we're, we're joining what Jesus is already doing. We, we get to participate in that. His intercession is both a comfort to us, it's also an example for us, and it's a call to us to pray as well. His example calls us to corporate prayer. Now, besides his example, he also gave us instruction for prayer. His disciples saw how often he prayed, and so they asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And when they asked him that, he gave them the Lord's Prayer, what we know as, as the Lord's Prayer. Turn to Matthew 6. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. This is the prayer that Jesus taught all of his disciples to pray. Let's read it together. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So first, the example of Jesus calls us to corporate prayer, but now the framework of the Lord's Prayer calls us to corporate prayer. The framework of the Lord's Prayer is the second way that we're called to pray for each other. I want you to notice something about the Lord's Prayer here. First word, our Father. Our Father, not my Father, right? But we, he, teaches, he teaches us to pray. Pray, our Father. And then look down at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation to deliver us from evil. This, these are all plurals, right? These are plural pronouns that describe our prayers, which means that we are to pray with each other in mind. 
We pray to our Father, which reminds us, yes, that God is our Father. We've been adopted by Him, but also reminds us that we're part of a family now. We have brothers and sisters, Jesus being the elder brother, and we are part of this family. When we pray our Father, we're remembering both our relationship to Him and to one another. It's not us. It's, it's not, sorry, it's, it's us, not me. It's we, not I. And this applies whether we're praying alone or together. Even if you are alone, we should be praying this way, our Father, keeping each other in mind. One author, no one knows how to say his last name. I don't think he even knows how to say his last name, so he just goes by John O. John O. He says this, The Lord's Prayer reminds us that we're both children of God and siblings to one another. Prayer was never meant to be a merely personal exercise with personal benefits, but a discipline that reminds us how we are personally responsible for others. This means that every time we pray, we should actively reject an individualistic mindset. We're not just individuals in relationship with God, but we are part of a community of people who have the same access to God. Prayer is a collective exercise. So Jesus Jesus teaches us in his example to pray for others, but then in his instruction through the framework of this prayer, he teaches us to pray with a family mentality. Do you pray with a family mentality? Do you pray with your brothers and sisters in mind? Now this is true for all believers, but the local church is especially the context where this is made concrete to us. We are brothers and sisters. We are spiritual family. So when you pray, do you pray with each other in mind? You know, one way to grow in this is by praying the Lord's Prayer. If, if, you, if you struggle with praying with others in mind, just, just actively pray the Lord's Prayer. Just go through it and, and, and emphasize, Our Father, give us this day. Maybe you don't need daily bread right now in the sense of you're not, you're not struggling with that. That's not, not something that you're wondering, where's that going to come from? But someone else in the body might. And you pray, give us our daily bread. You pray with them in mind. Another way to grow in this is not only by praying for each other more, but also by praying with each other more. And that leads us to the third way the New Testament calls us to corporate prayer is by the example of the early church, the pattern of the early church. Turn to Acts, and just like we did last week, we're just going to fly through some references in the book of Acts this morning just to see the pattern of the early church here. Acts, starting chapter 1. Acts 1, verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So the church prayed together together in a room as they waited for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now turn to Acts chapter 2. After the Spirit comes, Peter preaches at Pentecost. Many believe. Acts chapter 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And it says the prayers there because these were set times of prayer that they would go to. They devoted themselves to be at the church's prayer meetings, so to speak. That's what, that's what we read there about the early church. They devoted themselves to regular times of corporate prayer. Acts chapter 4. Peter and John had been arrested and before the council, and they come in verse 23, and they report what happened. When they were released, 
They went to their friends, reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, what did they do? They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth. And they pray. They hear what happened. And the moment they hear it, they say, let's pray together right now about what just happened. Go to Acts chapter 12. Similar circumstance. Peter is imprisoned. And Acts chapter 12 shows us the rescue of Peter. An angel comes to Peter and and leads him out of prison. He doesn't even know what's happening. He thinks he's dreaming. He finally gets outside of the gate, and and he comes to himself and realizes that, that he wasn't dreaming. God actually delivered him. Acts chapter 12, verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, his other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And so at the end of the story of his deliverance, we see what was going on in the background was that the church had gone to someone's house and they were just praying for Peter. They were praying that God would deliver him. And, and, and Luke wants us to connect that, that, that Peter's deliverance happened in response to the church getting together in someone's house to pray for that deliverance. And it's a funny story because look at verse 13. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. Uh, so, so they're praying for Peter to be delivered. He's delivered. She says, it's Peter. And they say, no, it's not. You're crazy. That couldn't happen. So, so they're, as we need to notice, they're not praying with much faith, are they? I mean, they didn't even believe it when it happened, but they were praying. And there was little faith in there somewhere. Just like Jesus said, you can move mountains with faith of a mustard seed, right? They, they obediently prayed together, even as they wrestled with unbelief, and God heard them and responded to their prayers. Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, we see this gathering of the church at Antioch, and while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So verse 2 shows us what looks to be just a routine thing that the church did. They were worshiping and fasting together. This is what the church did. They worshiped and they fasted. And fasting implies that they were praying, they were seeking the Lord. And God comes into this moment of regular prayer and fasting and worship, and he calls missionaries. And then what do they do? They pray again, and they fast some more, and they send them off. The whole thing is bracketed by prayer and fasting. Acts 16, go to Acts chapter 16, 25 and 26. Here, Paul and Silas are in prison. And what are they doing in prison? 25 and 26, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken. In prison, these two missionaries, they're just sitting there in prison, praying to God, singing hymns to God together. And the Lord opens the doors of the prison. In Acts chapter 20, verse 36, Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders one last time before he knows he's not ever going to see them again. These are his final words to these elders. He's close to this church. And after he gives them his final words, verse 36, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Just there on the beach, they have a prayer meeting kneeling before the Lord. The early church prayed together all the time. 
This is what they did. They prayed together. They prayed with each other in regular worship services and in special prayer meetings. They prayed with each other in large groups and in small groups. They prayed with each other in the temple and in prison cells. They, they planned to pray together and they prayed together spontaneously. The, the pattern of the early church was of praying with each other. And this should be the pattern of our church. This should be the pattern of every church. We pray with one another all the time. So do you pray with other members? Do you pray with other members? When might this happen? Well, first, just Sunday mornings, right now. You come to build, we close every time by having a, a time of prayer in small groups together. That, that's, that's one way. If you don't come to build and you, and you want to start praying with other members, come to build an hour early on a Sunday and spend 10 minutes at the end of every week praying for each other and praying in response to the word, praying for unbelievers. Corporate worship, the prayers that we pray in our service, joining in with those prayers. We are praying together in those moments. It's not someone up here praying and you listening. No, we are to pray together in those moments. But to go a little deeper in praying for, with each other, home groups, discipleship groups, these, these settings are places where we pray together. We can share how to pray for each other. We can enter into prayer in deeper ways together. Special prayer meetings. We're probably going to have a, a prayer meeting in January uh, together. It's a special time of prayer and fasting for the year 2020. 21. <laughs> we should have done in 2020. <laughs> we didn't, though. We're going to do it next year, though. 2021. Special prayer meetings. But then, really, like spon just spontaneous prayer with each other. Just, just, just say, can we pray about that right now, right here? Let's just, let's just kneel here on this beach and pray together. There's no beaches around here, but pray together just spontaneously. Don't just say, I'll pray for you, but just do it right then and there. That should be just a normal thing we see every Sunday. People just praying with each other and pockets over here and over there. But pray with other members. So we see the example of Jesus. We see the framework of the Lord's Prayer. We see the pattern of the early church. Fourth, the letters of Paul. The letters of Paul, nearly every one of Paul's letters begins with a report of how Paul has been praying for that church. And nearly every one of them ends with a request from Paul for prayer from that church. Almost every letter is bracketed by prayer. But it's not just the frequency of this pattern that I want you to notice. It's, it's the kind of things he prayed about. Just turn to Colossians with me as one example of this. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Verses 9 through 12. Look at the kind of prayer Paul prayed for the church. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And then look at chapter 4, how he asks for prayer in chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul's prayers and his prayer requests were shaped by one overarching theme, that is the work of the gospel. 
The work of the gospel was what he prayed about, what he wanted prayer for. When he prayed for a church, he prayed for their progress in understanding the gospel, for their application of the gospel to their lives, for their joy in the gospel. These are the things he prayed for the churches about. And when he asked for prayer, he prayed again and again, pray that I would have effectiveness in advancing the gospel. Pray that God would open doors to me to preach the gospel. The work of the gospel was the priority of Paul's prayer life for others. And this should be the priority of the prayers that we pray for each other as well. Do you pray for others with gospel priorities? Do you pray for others with gospel priorities? We are a people who are formed by the gospel. We share one faith in the gospel. Our hope is in the promise of the gospel. We are on a mission to spread the gospel, and our prayers for each other should reflect this reality. We are a gospel people. So just an example of this, how should we pray for a member who is facing financial difficulties? Several of us this year have been in this situation. How how can we pray for someone like that with gospel priorities? Well, we can and we should pray for the Lord to provide for their needs. Just say, Lord, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Provide for this family's needs. But we must go beyond that as well. We must also pray for the Lord to strengthen their trust in Christ as they wait for that provision. We must pray for the Lord to remind them of his love and care for them that he displays in the gospel. We must pray they would continue to serve Christ and not falter during this time. We must pray that the gospel will become sweeter to them, that that all the riches they have in Christ will become more real to them. We should pray for that person, not just for this temporary need and this temporary situation, but pray with the gospel infusing those prayers for that person. God wants to do so much more in our lives than just meet temporary needs. He, he uses these situations to work in us and to make us treasure Christ more. And we should pray that way for each other. So when we pray for each other, apply the overarching reality of the gospel to how you pray for one another. Fifth, the instruction of James. Turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. One of the clearest passages on corporate prayer. James 5 verses 13 and following. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. So James instructs us to pray with and for one another in the following circumstances. When we are suffering, when we are cheerful, when we are sick, when we are sinning. Pray with and for each other in those circumstances and, and, and realize that that's, all, that's everything, right? <laughs> suffering, cheerful, sick, sinning, that's my life right there. This is why we say collectively sharing our burdens, sorrows, and joys because every part of our lives should come into our prayers for one another. What should we pray about for each other? Everything. We are to pray our way through life with each other. That's our calling as a church body. Why don't we do this? I think one reason is that we don't share about our lives enough with each other. To to, to really do this requires sharing with each other what's going on. If we don't let others in, then how can they enter in? If we don't make our burdens and our sorrows and our joys and our sins known to each other, then how can we collectively share them? 
So this passage in James, listen, it places the responsibility on each one of us to open up. It places the responsibility on you to go to someone and tell them what's going on and to ask them for prayer. And then once you do that, it places the responsibility on that person you go to to actually pray for you and and collectively share what is going on. And so an application here is do you ask for prayer from others? Do you ask for prayer from others? Listen, are you suffering this morning? Just think about your life. You, you know it if you are. Are you suffering this morning? Well, have you opened up to another member about that suffering and asked them to pray for you? Are you rejoicing this morning? Well, have you given testimony to someone else about God's goodness in your life, given them the opportunity to rejoice with you? Are you sick this morning? Well, you should not be here if you're sick, all right? But if you are, do you ask for prayer? This, this passage in, in James, especially in sickness, I, I mean, there, there are times when, when we may be particularly sick. And so, so the, 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 the situation that's envisioned is someone that, that is seriously ill. And, and, and the instruction in that moment that comes to all of us at some point is call the elders. Let them pray over you, anoint you with oil, confess your sins. Are you struggling with sin this morning? Well, have you confessed your sin to another member and asked them to pray for you? Have you come to someone and say, I am sinning, I'm struggling with this area, can you please just pray for me? And we do notice there's this promise that you may be healed. There's a promise here, and this leads to the final way the New Testament calls us to corporate prayer is by the promises of God. God has given us, in his word, promises that are meant to incentivize us to pray for each other. I want you to see this. First, let's look in James again, just, just right where we are. Look how this passage ends. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then turn over to 1 John. 1 John chapter 5. Verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Just just two examples there of promises of God. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. This is the confidence we have that when we ask of him, he hears us. And we know that when we ask according to his will, we, we we will receive what we ask. These are promises of God. Now these promises come with some prerequisites, don't they? What what are the prerequisites for claiming these promises about prayer? First, faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. We cannot claim the promises of God here in our prayers apart from faith in Christ. Apart from faith in Christ, we don't even have God's ear in prayer. We cannot come to him apart from Christ. We are unholy people. We are unrighteous. We are separated, but through faith in Christ, we are given his righteous record. And we can stand before the holiness of God and, and we can call him Father, as we were saying earlier, and come into his presence in Jesus' righteousness. This is the confidence we have through the gospel. Not just faith in Christ, but repentance of sin. 
the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. What, what kind of person is that envisioning? I don't think it's so simple as, as just measuring up everyone's holiness and saying the most holy person is the most effective person in prayer. No, I don't think that's it. I think it's, it's the person who is actively repenting of sin. The person who, when they see their sin, they're turning away from it and asking God for forgiveness. That's a righteous person. You know, Peter calls to husbands, and he, and he warns them that if you don't love your wives well, then God's not going to hear your prayers. And so we know there's, there's a connection between the way we live our lives and God hearing our prayers. But if we live in repentance, faith in Christ and repentance from our sin, that prayer is powerful and effective. And then the third prerequisite is understanding the will of God. If we pray according to his will, then we know that we have the request we ask for. As we, as we study the scriptures and we discern what does God want, what, what has God revealed about his will in the scriptures, and we pray that way, God promises that he will answer those prayers. And so, and so these are great promises, aren't they, about prayer and God hearing and the effectiveness we can have in prayer as we put our faith in Christ and repent of sin and pray the scriptures. But what I want you to see this morning is the context of these promises. These aren't just generic promises that tell us pray and God will hear you. The context of both these passages is prayer for each other. We already saw it in James. That whole context is, is someone sick? Is someone suffering? Is someone sinning? Pray for each other. And then he says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So, so there in James, he's saying that, that as you pray for each other, your prayers will be effective for each other as you live in repentance and faith. And then here in 1 John, we see this, this promise again about God hearing us. But look at verse 16. Look at how John applies this promise in 1 John. 1 John 5, 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. Now there's many questions about this passage that we're not going to talk about, but what I want you to see is the connection that John makes between our confidence in prayer and then saying, so when you see another believer getting entangled in sin, pray for him and God will give him life. God will answer your prayer for other believers. They will not go headlong into sin and walk away from the Lord if you pray for them, another brother in Christ. God promises to grant repentance and perseverance for each other through our prayers for one another. So, so why has God given us these promises, church? Why does God tell us that he will hear us? Why does he assure us that we can have confidence? It's not so we can pray for ourselves. It's so we can pray for each other. When we pray for each other as those who have faith in Christ and are repenting from sin and are praying according to God's will, when we do that, God responds. God responds to your prayers for me and to my prayers for you and to our prayers for each other. He assures us he will hear. And, and I think this is the heart of why we don't pray for each other more. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God will hear and respond to your prayers for one another? Do you believe that God will hear and respond to your prayers for one another? I think this is why we don't pray for each other enough. This is why we don't ask for prayer enough. It's because we're, we don't actually believe that it matters. We don't actually believe that God will do them. We're like the people in Acts who are praying for Peter, but we're surprised when God answers the prayer. No, God has assured us when we pray for each other according to his will, in faith in Christ, repentance from sin, he will hear us. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. 
You can have confidence that God hears your prayers for the other members of this church. If you believe that the Bible is the word of God, if you believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, if you believe that the Holy Spirit gives us new hearts and makes us like Christ, then believe this also, that God will hear and respond to your prayers for each other. He will hear and respond to your prayers for each other. And and believing that, then renew your commitment to this. Renew your commitment to pray with and for one another. Let's be a church that collectively shares our burdens, sorrows, and joys by praying for each other in gospel love. This is Christ loved us and prayed for us and continues to pray for us even today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how you call us to prayer in your word. We thank you for the reality that Jesus himself is interceding for us right now and that we get to just join in to what he is already doing in heaven when we pray for each other, Lord. Lord, help us to apply your word. And Lord, we, we, we anticipate as we do that, that, that we will see how you answer prayer in each other's lives. All for your glory, Lord. Help us to give testimony to those things when they happen. Because it's all for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.